Well, good morning. Whoa. Um, I wish I could say I was just really happy to be up here this morning, but it's been a uh, it's been a week of wrestling with this passage for me. And uh, and earlier in the week, you can see I have to turn in my my passage and and uh, and title earlier in the week. And on Wednesday, I thought for sure this passage was about sex, and so that's that that's the title. But now. Um, as of yesterday, I'm sure that this passage is about uh, living a life pleasing to God, and sex is just the application. So, uh, not that I mean, I think all the week was was fruitful and kind of building up to and, and having an understanding of what this passage is about. But it's been one of those where, um, yeah, where it just took a lot of, of fight and uh, kind of like Jacob wrestling the angel, maybe. Um, Anyways, uh, that makes me sound like a hero, which I don't feel very much like right now. Um, so, <laughs> would you guys pray with me before I jump in? Father, thanks a lot for uh, your word. Thank you that um, that your word never goes out from you and returns to you empty, but always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And we know that uh, your purpose is, uh, as we read this morning, to bring glory to your great name, um, to uh, to be to become famous through us. And we pray that our lives um, lived as pleasing to you would bring um, fame to you. Um, so make us make that happen in our lives and our hearts, we pray. Amen. So I grew up, uh, what, as I would consider, a, like a quintessential southern dude, uh, which, which mostly means um, grotesquely insecure and and overly desirous of positive affirmations. Um, and if you're not if you're a southern guy and you're not laughing about this because you're not honest, we're we're a sensitive lot, we southerners. And Rachel and I got married right out of undergrad, and we uh, we both are from the Nashville area, and we moved right up to Boston, um, which is not a southern place. Uh, it's a very different place. And I got a job. Um, at working in construction with this guy, we were part of a church and somebody in the church said, Oh, Hey, this deacon, Joe Buckley, he, he's in construction and he needs a little help. You should work with him. And I thought that's great. This guy's a deacon in the church. You know, I'll, uh, I'll learn a lot about construction. I'll, I'll, I'll do this. It'll be wonderful. And Joe Buckley was not anything like the other deacons in the church that I had met growing up. Joe Buckley is a New England man through and through, which essentially means there are very few words and absolutely no encouragements. So I would get to work in the morning and Joe Buckley would grunt some kind of like half... So that was like how we... Good morning, Joe. Hit me the hammer. The what? The hammer, Colby. Hand me the hammer. The the what? The hammer. Like, oh, the hammer. Did you know there was an R in that word? <laughs> Let me help you out. And Joe, and then you know, like about around ten o'clock every morning, he he pull out a, like a sweaty wad of cash from his billfold uh, and and just loosen his pocket and kind of get a cut and drop a few on it. Colby, go to Dunkin'. Give me a medium rag and a cooler. The chocolate cruller. You cut chocolate cruller. That, if you didn't catch it, was him putting in an order for a medium coffee and a donut from Dunkin' Donuts. And that was part of my, my illustrious job there was to go get him his coffee every morning. Um, but Joe 
I, I struggled that entire year to work with Joe. I mean, I just had a tough time going in the mornings, and uh, I just I felt discouraged constantly. Like I knew that I was letting Joe down. I knew that I couldn't get it right, and uh, and and I just felt this kind of weight on me all the time. Like I was doing something wrong. Just com- just insecurity riddling, uh, and it kind of paralyzed me. You know, when you go about some kind of activity and you think, I know that I can't do this. I'm no good at it. Um, I, I'm just I'm a little I'm scared kind of all the time. Like learning to drive. You know, and you're definitely going to wreck if you're learning to drive in that kind of mode or any kind of other thing that you're learning. That's how I went like every day to work and it was miserable. And I, I just I had a terrible year of it. And I think that's what a lot of us, um, how a lot of us view God. When we think about what does it mean to please our God, um, we think of him a lot like Joe Buckley, like fairly indescript. Uh, he's not really going to help me know what that means. I kind of got to figure out what hammer is on my own. That's up to me. Um, and if I get it wrong, then uh, then it's terrible news. You know, then I'll I'll lose my job. You know, I'll, uh, some bad stuff will happen to me. Um, we get we get all uptight. I have a friend who uh, who works in campus ministry, and he says he meets with incoming freshmen on college campuses, and he sits down and talks to him. And often, at some point in the conversation, the, the freshman will say something kind of awkwardly. Well, uh, Pastor, I've got to tell you that I don't I don't really believe in I don't believe in God. He's like, Oh, really? Well, why don't you tell me about the God you don't believe in? And it's go through this list and get to the end of it. And he'd say, oh, good. Because I thought you meant you didn't believe in the God of the Bible. That What you just described, that's like a cartoon God. I don't know where you got that. But if you want to talk about the God of the Bible, let's, let's do that. Because it's very different than the God you don't believe in. And I think that's the case for a lot of us. We believe in some kind of cartoon God. Um, some, we, we say that we have a really hard time in our relationship with God and that we feel under pressure. But I think it's because we don't know the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself. So I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that we will be introduced to a small part of him this morning. Um, and, uh, and we can be confident of that because he tells us he's going to tell, talk to us in his word and we will, he'll help us to hear. Um, so this passage, we've been going through First Thessalonians this summer. And 1 Thessalonians is actually a very encouraging letter. Paul likes the Thessalonians versus, say, the Corinthians, where you get this vague picture that Paul hates them, um, even though he says he doesn't. You know, there's a lot of, lot of stern talking to in the Corinthians. You're doing this wrong. Let me tell you about this. And, uh, you know, uh, but in Thessalonians, he says things like he says in our passage, um, you know, you know the instructions that we gave you, uh, how to please God and just as you're actually living. He gives them encouragement. You guys are doing this. You're actually living this out. Um, So it's not such a heavy-handed letter in general, nor is our passage. Um, This passage also is, like I said earlier, broadly about a life pleasing to God. And then the application of that is, uh, is this sexual sin. That, uh, that probably it was a certain circumstance among them. It says, in this matter, see that no one wrongs his brother or, uh, or takes advantage of him. He's probably addressing something very specific in a minority in their church. Um, but I still think that, uh, that his address here has, has something for all of us this morning. Um, so, pleasing God. If this passage is about pleasing God, where do we even start? 
I've been reading uh, a book with my children, a book about uh, the Greek gods, the Greek pantheon of gods. And we got my, my son and I started reading Percy Jackson, and we thought, I have no, what, what is this referring to? They're really fun books. And so we decided we'd read this kind of illustrated version of, uh, of these stories. And as we're reading them, they're, they're a ton of fun. But I'm struck over and over again about how dumb the humans are. Like, they always get it wrong. Um, they you know, they don't know how to please the gods, right? They're, they're, they, they think maybe I should I sacrifice to this God, but this God's kind of against that God and they're not really friends. But if I, you know, if I serve this one and do something for them, then the other one will be mad at me. And, uh, you know, and then they get these wild hairs like sacrificing their only child and then the gods are like, nope, we don't like that. Smash. You know, and they, they don't know what the gods want. They live in perpetual confusion and uncertainty. And, uh, and and it strikes me that uh, that that's how we um, we go about relating to our God, like like we don't really know what He wants, um, like the, we, we we relate to Him like we've got to figure it out and kind of test things and, and see if He smashes us because we got it wrong. Uh, but I think um, but I know that what Paul is saying here is. He says a, a couple times, we gave you instructions in Jesus Christ. We gave you instructions by the authority of the Lord Jesus. By the authority of the Lord Jesus. He's referring to the law of God. He's referring to, to the fact that God has actually written down what He wants. He's told us what He wants from us. We can reference it. And we don't have to live in a fear of, uh, of, of misstepping every little, every little moment. Um, you know, I, uh, I've faced this before at the shoe store. Which ones should I get? I really want those. These are $10 cheaper. Maybe God wants me to get those. He doesn't care. Like, He doesn't care. Okay? That is not the balance that you're sitting on, the knife's edge of whether your God is pleased with you or not, as if you get the $10 cheaper shoes that you don't really like and are ugly because they're on sale. Like, he's not worried about that. But I think we tend to, we, we start to believe that all these tiny little minutiae decisions are what God is actually concerned with when he's actually, when he's already told us what he's concerned with. He's already given us instructions on how to live to please him. That is great news. You don't have to guess. You don't have to guess about what God wants from you. It's very unlike any other God that there is. But what if, um, what if you, like Paul, start looking really closely at this law that God's given you? So He has given us His law. He's told us what He wants from us. And you can take a step back and say, oh good, there's, there's ten of them. It can't be that hard, right? I mean, I could do ten things or not do ten things. Um, that's not so bad. And it's actually, uh, you can trace some of this story in Paul as he talks about his own life. This apostle who wrote this letter wrote many others in the New Testament. And, uh, and he says in one of them, in Philippians, he says this, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. That means obeying. Uh, I, have, I myself have confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
He seems to be saying there that what God has told him he wants for Paul's life, Paul has lived up to. He seems to be saying, in my own effort, I've pleased God. I've lived a life pleasing to Him. But if you read on in a different letter that Paul writes, and even later in that passage, but it's more clear immediately here, Romans 7, Paul is dealing with this, what's the law for stuff, and, and, and how does God use it? And he says this, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now Paul, he cannot work on the Sabbath with the best of them. He could go his entire life and never once sleep with his friend's wife. He could, he could never ever even take a part of his neighbor's donkey. Much less the whole thing. He can keep the law. He cannot do and he can do very clearly. But then he gets stuck right here. He looks at this law and says, you, sh- you shall not covet. Don't want something that the Lord hasn't given you. And Paul says, wait. I can't, I can't control that. That's something I don't have mastery over. Because he's talking about the motivational core of his being. Or what the Bible calls his heart. And he has to acknowledge that I can't actually want the things that God wants me to want. I can't love the people God loves for me to love. I can't make that happen in myself. I can't make it happen. So Paul is has to acknowledge, and you and I have to acknowledge, that even though that God has given us His written law and told us what He wants for our lives, we, we actually can't live up to it. Um, and half of us are saying, I knew it. I, couldn't, I knew I couldn't live up to it. Um, I'm a worm. I work for Joe Buckley. There's no pleasing him. And the other half uh, are probably still kind of stubbornly saying, I, I probably can. In both cases, you're wrong, which is fine. We'll keep moving. <laughs> Paul says the only, there's another alternative. If you, th- if you see this God that you can't please, you can't change your heart, you can't change your motivational structure, I can't please Him, there's another choice. And Paul lays it out. He says you can be like the heathen who don't know God, living in passionate lust. Which doesn't really sound all that bad sometimes. Um, there is a, uh, this is the choice. Passionate lust is the choice for those of you uh, who choose to not know God, who choose to ignore what, he is, what He's told us is pleasing to Him. Um, there is a book that, uh, that I read, and I've discovered this book, and I, I'm, I'm kind of an evangelist. I want you guys to discover it too. Nobody else in here has read it which is fun because I get to be the first. It's called A Fault in Our Stars. Um, just just kind of reading voraciously as I do, I found it. But um, this is from... I'm just kidding, Connors. Uh, this is from... This is a quote from the main, main character, Hazel. This is in the very beginning because I'm only a couple of pages in. She says this. <laughs> okay, I Googled it and I found this really good quote. I'm just kidding. Um, she says this. There will come a time, I said, when all of us are dead. All of us. 
There will come a time when there are no human beings remaining to remember that anyone ever existed or that our species ever did anything. There will be no one left to remember Aristotle or Cleopatra, let alone you. Everything that we did and built and wrote and thought and discovered will be forgotten. And all of this, I gestured encompassingly, she says, will have been for naught. Maybe that time is coming soon and maybe it is millions of years away. But even if we survive the collapse of our sun, we will not survive forever. There was a time before organisms experienced consciousness and there will be a time after. And if the inevitability of human oblivion worries you, I encourage you to ignore it. God knows that's what everyone else does. If, if there is no God, if He has not spoken into history and acted into history, then this is your other choice. Welcome to your alternative. Oblivion. Right? If we come from nothing and we're going from nothing, then all that matters is what you can experience right now, what you can grab for yourself right now, what you can acquire, what you can enjoy, what pleasures you can obtain, what security and power you can exhort over other people. Exert, not exhort. Exert over other people. That's all that matters. That, that's passionate lust. That's what Paul means when he says that. This, I think, sounds um, sounds unattractive to us. Sexual lust that that destroys relationships. If all I can get right is what I can get right now, why would I stay faithful to one woman? Why wouldn't I look at whatever images I want to look at? Why wouldn't I imagine anything that I want to imagine? There's nothing that matters but what I want. If I'm going, if I come from nothing and going to nothing, if I lust for power, it's going to end up in me overworking at my job or or using people for the authority I can gain over them. That sounds really unattractive to each of us, I, I would think. I mean, I hope it does, um, but it's actually. It's actually a uh, kind of a cyclical pattern for you and me. Um, there's a phrase called functional atheism. What that essentially means is I say that I believe in God. I say that there is a God who has spoken into history, who's told me what it means to please Him, who's even provided what I need in this life to live a life pleasing to Him. But we forget about that. And I break His laws constantly to get what I think I must have that He hasn't provided. Anytime you decide, um, anytime you decide to go and, and, and get something, to acquire something, to, um, to use someone uh, and, and cross God's boundaries in order to get it, you're, you're essentially saying that God doesn't actually exist and He certainly doesn't care for me. He certainly hasn't taken care of me. It's functional atheism. Every time we cross it. The alternative to living for God by His laws is to live for yourself. You can live to please God or please yourself. And the law of lust is always clawing for more, never satisfied, never safe, never secure. 
So God gives us His law so that we know what, what life looks like in pleasing Him. But it's not enough. A law, an external law, um, rules to follow aren't enough for us. We can't change our hearts. But that's why Paul brings in the second part of this. And at the, towards the end of our passage, he says this, Therefore, uh, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. And when he says that, you know when you're in an argument, like kind of a playful argument, and somebody like drops something really good and says something like really, really nasty, and everybody's like, Oh, no! Or like at a, at, a, at a rodeo when that dude ropes the calf and he hops off his horse and he runs over there and he ties him up and he goes like this. Hands off. Like, oh, that was it. That was it. We got it. Sealed the deal. Paul said, Holy Spirit. Oh! Nailed us, right? Why did he? Did he? Are you feeling that? Maybe not. <laughs> I'm a little excited. Um, that's, the, that, that's what he's doing here. He's, he's dropping the bomb. Saying... You're, you're rejecting uh, not just man, but I mean, you're not re- rejecting man, but God who gives us His Holy Spirit. Why does He bring up the Holy Spirit in a life pleasing to God? Why is that critical? Well, um, the Holy Spirit is given to holy people to make them holy. He's given to holy people to make them holy, which sounds uh, like a contradiction. But think about this. Uh, who gets scholarships to school? Who gets a scholarship to go to school? It's the smart people, right? And then they go to school and what do they get? Smarter. Smarter. Yeah, Nailed it, Marshall. Yeah. It's way better, way better than all y'all. Probably even could have pleased Joe Buckley. Um, yeah, smart people get scholarships to become smarter, Right? And in, uh, in many ways, that's, what the, that's, that's how we need to think of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to holy people to make them holy. But that doesn't sound very good to me. It doesn't sound great. Um, first, though, the Spirit is given to make people holy. One of the elements of a great story um, is, is this character called the Magical Friend. And uh, one of my favorites is Dobby. In the Harry Potter series, shows up at the right time, right? Just in the nick of time, he does something and and uh, and rescues. He's got he's he's an unsung character that uh, that people don't uh, is very assuming. Even usually, the main character kind of ignores them or or shuns them a little bit. But this is a character who's absolutely critical to success in the in the plot. Um. Sam Gamgee is another one of these. He's less magical, but he is, he is this kind of unsung, um, unsung partner. But, and this is a metaphor, so it falls way short. But this is, I think, similar to the Holy Spirit. We treat him, you know, we, he's an unsung hero in our lives. We, we, we assume we can't really understand him all that well. We don't, um, we don't, we don't rely on him. Uh, but he's like the magical friend. He's critical to success and pleasing God. You see, when Paul brings up the Spirit, he's reminding the Thessalonians of this passage that we read uh, from, from the uh, Old, Old Testament um, at the reading of God's Word. When, and, uh, and, and in this passage, it says that when God's plan for humanity begins to reach fruition, that He will take the law that is external and He will move it into their hearts by the power of the Spirit. A rule that's internalized 
I mean, that's the goal of, of any good parent, right? You want your kid to not only know what you want of them, but to actually want to do that and see the value in those rules. You could always tell the kids in undergrad, when I went to UT Knoxville, um, which was a very chaste and holy experience. And at, you could always tell the kids, there were always these the first semester kids would show up, and uh, you know about half the kids were just blown out, right? They didn't care. That's what, exactly what they wanted to do, be away from mom and dad. And then the other half were good southern kids, good you know from Christian families, and they would say, and some of them would say things like, oh, I'm not going to drink because that's not how mama raised me. And you're like, Okay, here it comes. Because that is an example of a law that has not been internalized, right? That's how mama raised me isn't going to take you all that far in a, in, a, in a freshman dorm room, you know? So, you know, inevitably, the next month or, or at, at least the next semester, or most of the next semester, um, these same people who had this external law uh, were, you know, were drinking and partying like anybody else. But God says that he's going to move his law internally. And to do that, he's going to have to counter this thing that Paul brought up that I can't not covet. I can't not do these things. I can't control the motivational center of my heart. And that is what the Spirit does. The Spirit moves God's law internally. He actually shapes and changes our very desires and longings. Look, this is the same Spirit who picked up Elijah and carried him like way across the nation. We think of the Spirit as some kind of just good ideas and groovy feelings. But the Spirit is is, is powerful. When Jesus healed people, when, when the church heals people, I mean, picture, like, zoom in in your microscope in your head and watch as though the very cells that are sick transform and turn to healthy cells. I mean, that has to be happening, right, for, for the healing that, that God provides by His Spirit. This is a Spirit that can do that. It can certainly change, certainly change your heart. Certainly transform you from a man or a woman who says, I need security, I need sex, I need money, I need power, I need a good job, I need to be loved and understood. He can certainly change, transform those things. He can certainly change you. So the Spirit is given to make people holy. But there's a problem. Because you see, the Spirit is a lot like Zsa, Zsa Gabor in Green Acres. You see, I told you, metaphors are falling way short this morning. But it's just a metaphor. And I think this one may be missing in this. But if you spent a lot of time watching TV as a kid and watched like Nick at Night, then you saw Green Acres sometimes. And Green, and Green Acres is this, this man marries this really ritzy lady and they move out to a farm. And the whole thing, I mean, they made an entire like replicatable show on the fact that she doesn't like a mess and he likes the farm. I, I couldn't watch but 10 minutes of it. But what happens is, you know, the spirit is like Jaja, right? He, he can't live in a barn. He can't live among a mess. So we have a problem. We need the spirit to internalize this law so that we can please God. We need him, but we're a mess. I live in passionate lust. It's like my M.O. How does this problem get solved? 
In this passage, Paul says that the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. This word uh, that Paul uses here, this is a great translation and no need to change it, but the word can also mean uh, that the Lord is an avenger. And I picture Iron Man and Thor and Captain America because I'm a comic book geek and I love that stuff. You don't have to picture them. But an avenger is one who sets things right by taking the abused, by, by taking the position of the abused and working justice. That's what an avenger is. And some of you have, have experienced, some of you feel that your insides are a barn filled with manure and dirty animals. Because you have experienced what Paul is talking about in this passage of someone who has not controlled their body in a way that is holy and honorable. And to some of you, that has made you feel very dirty and unworthy of the Spirit's presence in your life. But Jesus, Jesus is an avenger. He is an avenger and He will never let one of His little ones go unavenged. He will set things to right. You are not too dirty for the Holy Spirit. And all of us at some point or another have made the decision to live in passionate lust. Lusting after power or security or money or sex or pleasure. And that makes you dirty. That makes your that makes your insides a barn. But Jesus, in taking vengeance, the Father says, "Vengeance is mine." And it was. Vengeance, all of vengeance, belonged to Jesus on the cross, and all of that vengeance has been doled out to Him, so that it will never be doled out to you. And you have received not what you deserve, but you have received not even just a clean slate and a second chance to be clean and and, and please God, but you have received um, holiness as your record, perfection. Right loving. That's who you are. And so the Spirit, who's very picky about where He lives, can live in you. He can make you a holy person and make you holy. When I was um, closing out my year working for Joe Buckley, uh, two things happened that really changed our relationship. The first one was we were at a um, watching a football game at somebody's house. We were all part of the same church, and my friend Eric Littman was there too. And he was he was born and bred New Englander, so he spoke New England, and uh, which I didn't. And so we we watched this game, and we're we're leaving. Eric and I leave together, and he says, "Hey Corby, do you know um, do you know how Joe views you? I mean, do you know how he thinks of you?" And I was like, "Yeah, like." Kind of nervous that I'm going to mess something up and fairly grumpy and, and just angry, basically. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I know how he, he said no. It's actually not at your... You know, see, Eric confronted me on an inaccurate view. He said, Joe, Joe looks at you as part of his family. That's how he sees you. You're part of his family. He likes you. He likes you. That's a pretty big difference for me. 
you know, from then, from from then, and a couple other circumstances that happened, um, I was able to go to work with Joe and uh, and and work hard and do do the best I could and and know, uh, you know, even if Joe grunts at me for uh, for doing something wrong, yeah, cool, you the drill and you scrape the car. <clears throat> Joe, I, I know, man. I'm sorry. You know, it's okay. It's okay. I know that Joe likes me. And even so, we need to hear that that we do not have a Joe Buckley God who is disgruntled and grumpy and fairly certain that you're going to screw it up. Um, but he, in fact, has gone all the way uh, to becoming one of us and and living in our place and dying in our place um, so that he can make you holy, so that he could transform your life from one of uh, of, of shameful and thoughtless lust to a life that's pleasing to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word. We pray that you would, um, you would move this from outside to inside. We confess that that is a work of your spirit. And we cannot trust, uh, we can't trust you. We don't take you at your word. We don't obey you fully. Um, but you say that you've given us the power to begin living, this, living that way. And you say we don't need to live in fear of your dis, um, dissatisfaction with us. So please, Lord, um, make that true. Write that on our hearts, we pray. Amen.